There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach. And thanks so much for supporting the show because I'm just about to start my third year of recording. I can't believe it's been that long and that there are so many more filthy books left to read. Anyway, if you want to chip in to keep the project going, there are links in the show notes to Patreon and merch. Now, the memoir I'm reading this time is absolutely notorious. It was banned in the US and the UK until the early 1960s, and I think it was banned in lots of other countries as well. It's the template for a filthy book. But the funny thing is that it doesn't appear on the Irish censors' blacklist until 1969, when it was banned for 12 years. Does this mean that Ireland was possibly more broad-minded about this book than anywhere else? Well, no, not really because it was kept out of the country by customs officials. This is the same mechanism that was used by the UK and the US, because they don't have the same censorship laws as Ireland. Some publications are on an exclusion list that customs used to stop material at the borders. You might remember I talked about this in the Exchange and Mart episode a few weeks ago. So this book didn't need to be on the Irish formal censorship system because the border checks were working just fine. Now that you know it was filthy enough to annoy lots of people, I'll bet you're dying to hear what's in it. But before we get into the gory details, I need refreshment to sustain me on this voyage into one man's sex life. Sadly, food and drink don't feature much in Harris's story. The only carnality he cares about is located in the genitals. So I've opted for a gin and soda with lots of lime. I need some zesty cheeriness. First off, I should clarify that I'm reading just volume one. He wrote four. I've decided to stick to one because that was 300 pages or so. This covers his ages between zero and about 23. I just couldn't face reading 23 on. It was just too much. Especially because most of the 300 pages I did read was just bonking. There are pages of explicit, blow-by-blow, you could even say thrust-by-thrust, accounts of every woman he ever shagged, and almost every time he shagged them as well. This is a proper, legit sex memoir, openly marketed as such. On the front cover, there's a naked female torso, 
And when you flip the cover over, the insides are generously illustrated with frisky naked ladies. There is just no hiding what this book is about. But before anyone gets their rocks off, there was a manifesto to sit through. Actually, I found this introductory essay quite interesting. Harris can write a good argument, and he opens with a great first line. Here, in the blazing heat of an American August, amid the hurry and scurry of New York, I sit down to write my final declaration of faith as a preface or foreword to the story of my life. That's pretty good, like. Nothing too literary, but immediate and sensory. And it tells you everything you need to know about Frank Harris. He feckin' loves himself. There's more than a hint of the grandiose when he's writing a declaration of faith with a capital F. Oh yeah, and story and life, they also have capitals. You won't be surprised to hear that his genius, according to himself, has been underappreciated by governments and elites everywhere, but especially America, where he has lived and worked for most of his life. He writes, For 40 years now I have championed nearly all the unpopular causes and have made many enemies. He figures writing a rude book will prove those enemies right, but he's going to do it anyway, because it's a very fuck-the-begrudgers energy. After this short whinge about being misunderstood and misrepresented, he outlines that his memoir is being written to educate the young, to put them on the right track. He's just so generous. And then he wrote a remarkable sentence that I'm going to read to you in all its glorious craziness. Here goes. My creator, or heavenly father, when I was wholly without experience and had only just entered my teens, gave me, so to speak, a machine gun of sex, and hardly had I learnt its use and enjoyment when he took it away from me forever and gave me in its place a double-barrelled gun. After a few years, he took that away and gave me a singled-barrelled gun with which I was forced to content myself for the best part of my life. How fucking demented is that? It's grotesquely phallocentric, and the martial analogies with the gun and the types of gun and its relationship to virility, it's kind of mental. But he is being totally deadly serious. There is no flippancy here. With a completely straight face, he goes on to say this. I want to teach youths how to use their machine gun of sex so that it may last for years. And when they come to the double barrel, how to take such care that the good weapon will do them liege service right into their fifties, and the single barrel will then give them pleasure up to threescore years and ten. Only a few pages in, and you're thinking, really, Frank? First of all, I love the way it's all about his own pleasure, not the pleasure of the other person he might be sleeping with. Let's just set that aside. It's also nice to know that I'm not the imagined reader of this book. Wrong gender, wrong gonads. I was really hoping that he was taking the piss, but I honestly don't think he was. He's in deadly earnest, and this book, remember, is published in 1922, four years after the end of a world war where machine guns mowed down millions of men. This metaphor seems insensitive, at the very least. I did want to laugh, because it is ridiculous, but then when you consider the contemporary echoes of mass shootings in America, incels, toxic masculinity, 
It just seems a bit on the nose right now. Anyway, after this clangor, he goes on to talk sense about hypocrisy in the Western Christian tradition, where Christian nations slaughter and then claim that they're actually good Christians. Harris highlights American racism as directed at indigenous populations and black people. He trashes the British colonial project. Then he rails against economic inequality. These are all very good points. I can't disagree with him, and I salute him for seeing through some of the great lies of his era. Just for context, he was born in 1855, and he died in 1931, so he was raised in the heyday of the great imperialist jingoistic project. But all his anti-authoritarian political philosophy boils down to one thing. The sex instinct will save the world. Or, more accurately, letting the sex instinct out of the social prison that it's currently in will transform everyone everywhere. This is like the Communist Manifesto, only for sex. And it's a wonderful idea he has, very noble. Only problem is that he's really talking about himself, not everyone else. Fundamentally, he believes that if people like him had more and better sex, the world would be a better place. For sex, of course, you have to read Penis Meets Vagina. That seems to be all he's talking about. Because the only people who can change the world are straight, randy old white men like himself. At this stage, I'm still diverted because these are the opening few pages and his grandiose self-absorption is almost charming. His writing style is vigorous and polemical, so at least you can see what sort of bloke he is. Harris does not hide himself from the reader. To be honest, by the end of Volume 1, you'll wish he hadn't told you quite so much about himself. When the book proper begins, Frank takes us to his earliest memories of growing up in Ireland. I find it very amusing that the author of one of the most scandalous texts in the mid-20th century was born and partly raised in Ireland. He's not the sort of emigrant who's commemorated in a mural or on a postage stamp, though. Can you imagine? That would be hilarious. Funny how nobody wants to celebrate the smutty Irish-Americans, like Frank Harris or Day Keane, who wrote lots of trashy pulp noir. Anyway, his childhood in Ireland wasn't very sexual, though he does his best to show that he was quite sexually precocious. He was fascinated by girls' legs long before he was an adolescent, apparently. His first orgasm was achieved under a haystack from a, quote, bout of frigging, unquote. A very important part of Harris's manifesto is the dangers of frigging, that is, masturbation. Like many people of his generation, he was convinced masturbation depleted vitality. He tells a cautionary tale from his boarding school of a boy who was always frigging himself. He wanked so often that he ended up crying in a corner and unaccountable nervous tremblings shook him for a quarter of an hour at a time. Yikes, sounds grim. According to Harris, before this boy was taught self-abuse, he was one of the quickest boys of his age at lessons. With this terrifying example before him, Harris was determined not to wank at all. So he abstained deliberately to preserve his strength for sports and learning. Of course, this inevitably led to wet dreams, which made him feel washed out. So he had to come up with a solution to stop this depletion of his vital energy. 
And I'm going to read this out to you because it is quite demented. I picked up by chance a little piece of whipcord and at once it occurred to me that if I tied this hard cord around my penis, as soon as the organ began to swell and stiffen in excitement, the cord would grow tight and awake me with the pain. Ouch! And this apparently doesn't qualify as self-abuse. Wet dreams were catastrophic, but fashioning a device to strangle your own genitals? Totally normal. It's interesting that Harris doesn't actually admit to being terrified, but surely only real fear would drive someone to do this. The noose around his penis does wake him up from the pain, but it doesn't actually kill the erections. Finally, in desperation, he sits on the cold stone slab of his washstand, and hey presto, the erections vanish. I can't even imagine how shockingly cold that must have been. Ouch, once more. But Harris was thrilled. This is a salutary tale. His physical strength returns, and he is once again the captain of his body. The safety catch was firmly back on his machine gun. This wanking control campaign happens when he's at school, and there are a number of chapters devoted to his experience of an English boarding school, and those prove how cruel and abusive those places were. This reads kind of like an expose, really, of an institution. Harris believed that if parents knew what went on, they would never send their boys there completely forgetting that most fathers had themselves attended the exact same schools. He might think he's extremely clever, but he cannot contemplate the real horror of that particular fact. So he writes about boys torturing and raping each other, alongside the normal beatings and bullying that you would already have heard of. Children of colour were called by racial slurs instead of their names, while he himself is called Pat because he's Irish. The sadism of those boarding schools, as it emerges in his narrative, is just incredible. Harris is deeply unhappy and determined to run away. When he wins a... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cash prize for exam results. He takes the money and boards a ship to America. And at this point, he's about 14. On board ship, he starts a relationship with a girl called Jessie. And when they finally get to New York, arranges to meet her for sex. From this point on, I think the book should be subtitled Frank and Tommy, Their Adventures in America. FYI, Tommy is the name he gives to his cock. Because I'm that kind of person, I checked if Tommy was standard British or American slang, and it doesn't seem to have been. Tommy, of course, was slang for a British soldier from at least the 19th century, so we're back to martial language again. I mean, Frank, you should just have joined the army if you liked it that much. I should point out that there are chapters where the shagging count is low, especially the ones where he works as a cowboy. I mean, yeah, he was a cowboy. And he makes pots of cash through hard work, brains and honesty. Truly, this is the American dream in all its stereotypical splendour. So after he makes all this money, he turns to educating his mind at university. While he reads and thinks deeply, because, of course he does, he is an exceptional student, he still has lots of time for sex. First, he seduces a married woman, Lorna Mayhew, on the second time he meets her. She is more than willing, she is extremely randy, and after countless, yes, countless orgasms from Harris, she collapses in tears of pleasure. I can't believe I just said that, but... That is what he wrote about. It's worse than that, actually. This is what she said immediately afterwards. I'm cringing reading this out. Oh, you great strong dear, she cried with her arms clasping me. Oh, who would ever have believed such intense pleasure possible? I never felt anything like it before. How could you keep on for so long? Oh, how I love you, you wonder and delight. Yeah, okay, Frank, you're a stud, we get it. I know everyone is the hero of their own story, but I do think this is taking the piss. After shagging Mrs. Mayhew to tears, Harris then teaches her about the withdrawal method of contraception, douching, and also the rhythm method. But, and this is surely the best bit, his advice is mostly bullshit. For withdrawal, he claims that only the first ejaculation contains sperm. Well, that's definitely not true. He thinks that douching with water is sufficient, but water isn't much of a spermicide. I know I shouldn't be so pleased he was wrong, because I shouldn't sit in judgment on historic people, but I'm judging Frank Harris, and I'm not sorry. He's a giant show-off, and I feel no qualms about laughing at him. Also, I'm not convinced he actually likes women, as people. Obviously, he likes to shag them, and he gets off on their adoration, which is plentiful. Women just love him, he can't help it, but he doesn't find anyone interesting beyond the size of their tits or arse. His habit of assessing their bodies against some imaginary perfect standard, actually I found that extremely grim. Not a dalliance goes by where he doesn't judge the woman he fucks. I found this appalling. This is about a girl called Kate, a girl whose virginity he lusted after. Once he's had her, and that's very dramatic, there's blood everywhere, he asks her to stand naked in front of him and described her thus. 
The next moment she stood there naked, the flickering light flame of the candle throwing quaint arabesques of light and shade on her beautiful ivory body. I gazed and gazed. From the navel down she was perfect. I turned her round and the back too. The bottom even was faultless though large. But alas, the breasts were too big for beauty, too soft to excite. Frank, you can fuck right off. What are you talking about? One half of her is perfect, like she's two halves? It's just, I hate him for this so much. If we believe him, and that is a big if, this is only the third woman he has seen naked. So where did he get this critical eye? I'm going to guess that the answer here is porn. Remember I said there were naked women pictured throughout the book? These are standard nudie pics from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Women stand naked in their shoes, or sometimes shoes and stockings, in poses reminiscent of classical Greek statues. Images like this today aren't shocking, but these were once truly pornographic. Harris, like I said, is born in 1855, so these nudes are proper filth for most of his life. Now, he doesn't say so, but I'll bet these images created a template of some ideal female body for Harris, a template that real bodies just couldn't match. He also has strong opinions on the size, shape and internal dimensions of vulvas and vaginas. I mean, no prizes for guessing where he got these crazy notions. It is kind of amusing, though, to read a manifesto about sex and not encounter any references to porn. Harris never talks about reading it, buying it, trading it, or hiding it. But I'm sure he was consuming porn, whether in written or photographic form. He's just wildly dishonest to leave that part out. And the book does read like a porno. Some of my notes actually say, yes, this is a porno. It reminds me of Dolly Morton or The Lustful Turk, which I've covered in other episodes. He's kidding himself if he thinks this is all for science. However, I will admit that he deliberately avoids some extreme porno language from those texts, like Deep to the Hilt. He tries to be more anatomical, maybe even scientific. He calls genitals the sex, for example. He mentions the clitoris. He's less inclined to say sheath and sword and use those kind of words that are familiar from, say, the Lustful Turk. Still, though, it reads like porn that's trying to be clever. Apart from his tiresome rating of women's body parts, is there any other evidence that he's misogynistic? Well, he thinks that pandering to girl readers stripped English literature of its earthly Shakespearean soul or some other bullshit. Because teaching women to read was only going to lead to a bad place, wasn't it? It won't surprise you to learn that he's homophobic as well. Anyone afraid of femininity will fear effeminacy, which Harris occasionally tells us he does. For all his daring, self-consciously radical political statements at the beginning, Harris is just a bog-standard misogynist and homophobe. To his credit, he tries not to be violently racist, but that's only because he'd get up on a cracked plate. For Frank, the world is full of pussy, and it would be a shame to let skin colour restrict the opportunities. I think that's enough of what's in this book. 
we all know by now that Frank is a wunderkind, a self-proclaimed stud muffin. So it's time for a censorship bingo to determine just how much offensive content is in my life and loves. And so we begin with breasts. Yes, both described and drawn. Then bestiality. No. Sex work. Yes, Harris actually has a chat with the sex worker, but doesn't sleep with any because he's afraid of VD. He's presumably convinced that only sex workers can be sick with it. Then racism. I mean, hell yeah. He shags a black girl who can pass as white. There's a lot to explore in that section. Next up, drugs. No, actually, not even a drop of alcohol. Then politics. Yes, of course, lots of it in the introduction and then the afterward. And swearing. Not a thing. It's very clean language. Then we have infidelity. Well, yes, he does sleep with a married woman, Mrs. Mayhew. Crime. I had to think about this, but then I remembered he steals cattle. So yes, there is crime. He's a cattle rustler. Next up, genitalia. Well, yes, there are lots of slits, pussies and tommies named and rated. So yeah, tons of them. Then abortion. Actually, I didn't see any references. I was surprised by that. Orgies. I'm very disappointed to say not a one. For such a notorious book, I was really expecting a lot more diverse or unusual sexual experiences. Sexual assault. Uh, yes, especially in the boarding school chapter. Awful. Then extramarital pregnancy. Uh, as an abstract and how to avoid it rather than any women seeming to get pregnant. So yeah, we can tick that. Masturbation. Yes, by boys and men. Didn't spot any women engaging in bouts of furious frigging, though. Next up, sex toys. No, sadly. Then feminism. Nothing, as I said. He might be a radical thinker, according to himself, but he didn't take any notice of that strain of radical politics. Then divorce. No, not mentioned once. Next, contraception. Yes, in great detail. He's educating the women he shags and the reader at the same time. Dual-purpose narrative. Menstruation. Yes, and to be fair, this is a good thing. He doesn't seem coy about that particular aspect of female anatomy. Blasphemy. Absolutely. Creating a new pagan Christian faith, as he's trying to do, is deeply blasphemous. Oral sex. Yes, but only once, and he doesn't seem that interested in it. For Harris, it's the vagina or nothing. Then graphic violence. No, didn't see any. And finally, LGBTQ plus content. Yes, I would say that the fear of other expressions of gender and sexuality runs throughout the memoir. And then there are explicit references to gay men. So if I add it up, Frank Harris's sex memoir gets just 14 out of 25. So it is rude, but not half as rude as he thinks it is. Or indeed, as rude as the various censorship mechanisms found it. I really enjoyed subjecting this book to bingo. It's particularly satisfying because Harris himself was the king of cold clinical assessments. I think he richly deserved being reduced to a rudeness rating. As you may have guessed by now, I didn't really like this memoir. 
but that's not surprising when you consider that I am not the imagined audience. I'm not a man like Frank Harris. As an autobiography, it has dated really badly because of this polemicist and instructional intent. That curious yoking together of philosophy and porn isn't always successful. About halfway through reading it, I had the weirdest thought. A porno like The Memoirs of Dolly Morton is more fun to read because it's more honest. In a pornographic text, the consumer of sex, the fucker, so to speak, doesn't waste time rating the bodies of the objects of their desires. The fuckies, if you want to put it that way. I can't believe I'm saying this, but straight-up porn is more joyous than Frank Harris's attempt at educational porn. But go ahead and read it if you want to know about driving cattle through Texas or running a hotel in Chicago. These parts were interesting, because he is a good journalist. I'm hoping to bring a woman's perspective to the next episode. This memoir project features a lot of self-indulgent men so far. Only fair to let a few ladies speak for themselves. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.